Hello, I'm John, the executive producer here at Final Show Films. I got a few notes for you before the show. First, I want to thank you all for watching. We couldn't do what we do or the amount of things that we do without the support of you, the viewer. If you want to support us financially, which we always appreciate, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us continue this and all the things that we do. I want to give a special shout out to our $25 supporters, Antitonic, Cat Waterflame, and Samantha Bates. Uh, second, I want to let you all know that we here at Final Show Films are planning a little get-together up at Gen Con this year. That's August 2nd through 5th up at Indianapolis. We're going to be up there sort of hanging out, enjoying the con, spending time together. And if any of you guys want to come up and say hi, please feel free. We don't bite unless you want us to. And if you enjoy whatever it is you're about to watch or listen to, be sure to check out our website at finalshowfilms.com where you can find links to all of our other content, both podcast and video. And be sure to follow me at John A. Bates on Twitter for more updates on all of the content we're creating in the future. In the meantime, thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking. I'm John, executive producer here at Final Show Films, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and joining me today is Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack, at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm uh, at nah, JThomas411Mania on Twitter. I can do that. Yep. Yeah! And today we're talking about episode 26 of Critical Role, Consequences and Cows, uh, starring Ryan Acaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel, Don Marisha Reyes, Keyless Sam Riggle as Scanlon, Charles Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Last time on Critical Role, they found out Silas was a vampire. And, <laughs> and everybody went dark. And, and everybody ev- went batshit. <laughs> Everyone went kind of batshit crazy, and we got my brother's ringtone. Uh, <laughs> really, Jack? <laughs> you know we record this, right? <laughs> I mean, that's especially a reason to do it, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, there are people. Is there, there anything are- else? Horrific, you'd like me to try and impersonate terribly? There are a number of people who just had to throw their headphones off because you made their ears bleed. They're not even <laughs> listening to this part now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we can say they should be back at this point. Also, right, now yeah. I've gotta, also, now I've got to normalize against that. You just spiked everything. <sighs> Anyways. After the party returned from their journey to Vasselheim, they went and had a feast. They were invited to a feast at the castle uh, in Iman uh, 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 by Sovereign Uriel Taldore, um, at which the Briarwoods had been, and to which the Briarwoods had been invited. Um, after the dinner, Vax had attempted to sneak into the Briarwoods' room to see sort of what was up, and got caught. We found out they were uh, respectively a spellcaster of some kind and a vampire. Uh, and a fight ensued, a fight which took the entirety of last episode. Quite frankly, last episode, while it was a four-hour episode, only, like, in-universe lasted, like, 30 minutes. Yep. Which is how things go. That's uh, more or less accurate. Yep. Which also, ended, grandma murder. Yes, which ended with, uh, uh, let's see, Percy bludgeoning a young boy who was driving their carriage and shooting him in the hand and, and like cauterizing his wounds 
with a hot barrel of a gun that he had just fired next to his head. Um, uh, 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 Orion uh, using telekinesis to to uh, saw blade an old lady. <laughs> the who, most who complicated, like, the most complicated, cold blooded murder of all time. Saw blading an old lady <laughs> who had been put to sleep, and after trying to run away. um and then letting go the other guy that was that was attacking them who had genuinely been trying to kill them rather than run away uh we we sort of had our we sort of had our conversation about uh cognitive dissonance there at the end of uh, of that episode um and we pick back up uh, after resting for the night after the events of the Briarwoods and the scuffle with the broker and his agents, the team awakes rested and they amble around the keep getting ready to head out uh, for their meeting with Yurgo at the palace. They check on Lilith only to find a note saying that she was headed to Vasselheim to try and get date to try to get in touch with Zara, her cousin. Uh, Lilith being the tiefling that assisted them in the fight against the Briarwoods. Um, played by guest uh, Kitbus. Kitbus, thank you. Um... They then check in on Percy, who is not in his room and has locked himself in his workshop, telling Grog and Scanlan that he wants to be left alone, as he is hate-smelting some ore. A little shocked, it leaves them wondering if there wasn't possible a possible late-night tryst between the gunslinger and the tiefling. Um, as they begin to leave, Keyleth asks everyone what they think of Percy, blurting out, Your soul is forfeit, which did happen. That was what he said uh, to the guy that, they kill- that he killed last night. Um, Your soul is forfeit. Yep. Uh, so yeah, Keyleth asks everyone what they think about Percy blowing that out, as well as the brutal murder of the old lady. Yes. <laughs> they talk about it for a bit, but then come to a agreement that they will attempt going forward to be a little less brutal, and, and when they can, will try to avoid senseless death. Tiberius wasn't in this conversation. Uh, that was everyone except Tiberius and Percy. I think. I mean, to be fair, no, that is a that is a regular conversation that happens in D and D game. It's true. Yes, yes, it's a conversation is. we have all had many, many times. Right. Yep. Well, and I mean, in character, Percy, I think was there. Talison is absent this episode, so yeah. you know. Yeah. Holy crap! Hijack's phone. That was weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, type. Tiberius, during this time, uh, was in his laboratory doing some research on vampirism. No, Percy wasn't there because Percy was in the lab hate smelting still. Yes, that's, that's that right. was that was the Percy's not here hand wave. Yes. Um, Tiberius, during this time, was in his laboratory doing some research on vampirism. The items are uh, the things that he finds are few and far between. Much of it's myth and hearsay. Uh, they don't have vampire movies to draw inspiration from in Tal'Dorei, apparently. Yeah, but he he gets some decent things, and then don't they get summoned to go talk to Uriel? Uh, well, they were already planning on going to talk to Uriel. But ah, okay. he, had, he heads back up to the rest of the group. They fill him in on their thoughts about the brutal killing of their sleeping enemy, um, which essentially evolves into an intervention <laughs> for Tiberius, <laughs> led by Vax. Uh, Tiberius agrees that he will attempt to curb any extreme attacks, as well as trying out new things in the forest. There's also a rather uncomfortable bit where uh, they start drawing parallels between Tiberius intentionally murdering a unconscious woman and Keyleth accidentally killing a child, which is something that happened pre-stream and something that, well, let's just say the level of repentance on their actions between uh 
Keyleth and Tiberius's uh, <laughs> fuck-ups is somewhat disproportionate. Right? One of them feels much worse about what they did accidentally than what they did on purpose. Yeah. But Tiberius vows to practice, try out his new toys in the woods rather than on old people. <laughs> Jesus God fucking Christ. damn it. Anyway. Uh, um, that's more settled. things happen. <laughs> that's settled. They head to the Cloud Top District. When they arrive, the guards look a little on edge because, as I if I need, I, as I may need to remind you, Tiberius incinerated two of them last night. Um, <clears throat> Vax makes a point to ask about his serpentine belt, which he lost the night before in the halls. He's informed that he should ask again after they talk to Uriel, and are escorted into the throne room. The go talk to Daddy first before you get your toys back. Yes. Um. <clears throat> Once inside, they see the rest of the council present, and as the doors behind them close, uh, uh, the ones across the room open, and a large number of heavily armed guards enter, hands on swords, ready to attack if told. Rising from his seat, Uriel addresses the group, telling them, uh, telling Arbiter Brom to prepare the area. He casts a spell over the area, though Fox Magna cannot tell what. He tells them that he is shocked at the events that have transpired. Members of his own council attacking honored guests after a feast in their honor. Because the only reason they are not in change is that they have a history and that he would give them a chance to speak. Uh, when someone begins to talk, he tells them to hold their words until he is done. He informs them that when, they care, that when the Which carriage they was... do not do even a little bit. No, they don't. <laughs> because they're Vox Machina. Because, you know, when an authority figure tells you to shut up until I'm done, you don't listen to them. You interrupt them at every possible opportunity where you might have a slight disagreement with them. Anyway. I mean, to be fair... We that's how we, that's how we treat John as our executive producer. This is true. <laughs> More specifically, we're talking about you know the, the 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 whole point of the podcast narrative narrative tropes and narrative writing. Yeah. Um, that is standard operating procedure for the protagonists in just about any story. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the idea of the cop who goes outside the lines is. Such a thing that there are almost as many parodies about it than as there are actual movies about it. Yeah, and, um, and, and ostensibly, uh, in stories like this, you're following the non-authority figures because the authority figures in some way, shape, or form aren't enough, which breeds an inherent mistrust of the yeah. authority figures. Or well, at and, least an inherent... Lack of respect. P- potentially, yeah, potentially inflated view of self, maybe. Yeah. Well, and that falls into the nature of of sort of the what you see in a lot of epic story storytelling as it is, which is uh, fantasy storytelling. Mo- most epic kind of storytelling doesn't tell the story of the the people in power, who the people who have all of the authority and everything being the heroes it's the underdogs it's the um the people who tend to have a very strong anti-authoritarian streak to them i mean this is this is the same whether you're talking about you know star wars or um uh uh the that book series i can't stand wheel of time um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, or the other book series I can't stand the Drizzt books. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Though, so, in, in the case of Wheel of Time, it eventually becomes about the authority figures because all yes, the main but that's sort of how it there. starts. Um, yeah. Is is they're very yeah. much they're the people who are the marginalized, poor, you know, types are very much not the people in power. So when you set up a story like that, we're following it from their perspective. So they are, of course, going to go against the grain of the authority figures. Now, I'm not saying that it's smart within the context of the storyline, because clearly not. But it makes sense in terms of like a writing standpoint, because you want to set yourself up. You... As the viewer or the reader, you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, immediately something's not right with um, the king. Yeah. Like something doesn't seem right here. So you're already on Vox Machina's site. So you're okay or more okay with the idea of them standing up and basically, basically completely ignoring anything he has to say. Yep. You might be. I wasn't for this episode, but we can cover that later if we need to. Yeah, I, I, uh, I often wish um, whenever, whenever there is a, whenever there's a character situation where people uh, just have a complete lack of respect for authority figures that are there for a reason. Like, I'm not talking about like, like you know, lack of respect for Hitler s characters, but characters like Uriel, I always kind of wish that the story would go to where they interrupt and he just says, okay, guards kill them. Right. Because, <laughs> I mean, well, let, let's like all things on the internet, let's take it to Hitler for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Hitler was obviously potentially the objectively worst human being to ever walk this planet. Sure, everybody knows that. But if it's 1945 and you are brought before the Fuhrer and he is chastising you about something. If you don't want to get shot in the head, you don't just interrupt the guy, flip him off and tell him you don't respect him. Now that might be how you feel. Yeah. But even as myself, an individual who is vehemently opposed to literally everything that I think the man ever did or said, I'm still going to conduct myself with a level of circumspection when he's in power and I am not. Oh, yeah, no. Now, now, once the story transpires and things are somewhat flipped and I'm on the up and up and I've got Hitler at gunpoint, yeah, I'm pulling the fucking trigger and putting one through the man's temple. Yeah. No, absolutely. you have to wait for the moment. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Especially, and- especially when at the ter- point of confrontation, Hitler is giving you a honestly relatively benign chewing out. You know, they're they're not in the throne room hanging over a pit of scorpions with piranhas underneath. You know, they're literally just, hey, shit has gone down. Stuff got out of control, and the authorities are trying to get to the bottom of it, but you are not under threat to your life or liberty right now. Chill the fuck out. Anyway, that's just my perspective. Yeah, and I get that, like, real world, or me being in that situation, no. And while I was watching it, uh, Mm -hmm. both originally and then re-watching it, it's... I don't want to say it's a cringe moment, but it kind of is. 
Like not cringe, but like no, guys, no, bad. Stop. Just shut up. And, just shut up and let the guy finish a sentence. Yeah. Really, just just <laughs> shut up and let the guy finish a sentence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then, by the same token, like I'm looking at that, and I'm all. This is, and I'm not just talking about the genre. Um, th- this is this is a fantasy story. This right. is escapism. This is us. Whether rationally we're thinking, you guys are being fucking idiots. Stop. He's g- it's gonna get worse for you. Right. You're Emot- only making it harder on yourself. Yeah. Emotionally, the general reaction uh-huh. in these kinds of situations is typically this. This is escape. This is what I would want to be able to do. Yeah. Um, and get away with it. So, while it's not it's not smart player behavior from because you don't know that your DM is going to to give you those fantasy trope moments right. um, from a storytell from strictly a storytelling or or narrative arc standpoint it works really well because it's it, it gives your audience that escapism mm-hmm. it, it, and it works in both directions I just really yes. like the mm-hmm. idea that like I've if this had ended differently and they had interrupted Juriel and he said, okay, guards, kill them, and they all died, and the ending was, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, I would have been, su- I would have been just as happy with that as I was with the actual result. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, but, uh, so, uh, he informs them that when the carriage driver was taken to their keep, an odd thing in and of itself, there was the body of an old woman found dead. Arbiter Brahm, a cleric by training, used his magic to divine the nature of the woman's death and found that it was Tiberius who had brutally massacred the seemingly asleep woman in the street. He stops there, allowing the group to say their piece. Uh, ignoring that part, Vax points out that he has the marks of a vampire bite and tells Uriel that they would not have acted without cause. Vex informs him that the Briarwoods were, in fact, the murderers of Percy's family, and that they took White's home by force, and Vax tells Uriel that he will allow anyone to probe his mind with any spell and see what he what he saw the previous night. Uh, basically doing that, poke me up to a lie detector. I, I will gladly take the lie detector. Which is something that I'm curious as to why that doesn't happen more often in these kinds of settings. Mm-hmm. Like when you have the magical ability to divine the truth and somebody accuses you of something you didn't do, I feel like that should be your first defense of, hey, that guy can cast the spell that tells if I'm telling the truth or not. Cast it on me now. Um, well, that's because trial by combat is generally more exciting. Yeah. Ni- neither of those happens right. Neither of those happens here. But no. yeah, it's it's a situation <clears throat> where. Being set in a fantasy setting like this, um, there are the ability or, or anything where people have abilities that they don't have in in the real world. This kind of thing, superhero stuff, uh, science fiction, et cetera, et cetera. There is. You find yourself in a narrative problem of that the kinds of the kinds of conflicts that would be serious concerns in the real world are very quickly solved in by zone of truth or telepathy or, you know, whatever the case may be. So you have to find when, when you're setting up that kind of world, 
If you don't want to severely limit your options for storytelling, you have to find ways to, to, to mitigate that. And I think one of, you know, D and D does it through things like non-detection and then things like that. One of the things that I always loved was the idea. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I love Eberron so much is that, uh, it's very specific about this. Most churches, for example, you can't just go to a church like you can in Faerun and say, here's 50 gold, heal me. Here's a thousand gold, raise this person from the dead. Because a lot of churches don't have spellcasting priests. They're just priests. Um, and yeah. so there, we never got a clear answer necessarily as to why that... the. I mean, uh, there were we, we, reasons, we, but we do yeah. shortly. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but yeah, there's, and there's the question of the presence of magic versus the prevalence of magic, you know, like right. you were referencing there, Jeremy. Yeah. And that's, that's something that you can, you can play with if you're trying to have super awesome superpowers in your story, but not have them always be the solution to whatever problem is being faced in the moment. <laughs> yep. Uh, they point out the group also points out that Assume was not was being mind controlled and that he may still be enthralled by the Briarwoods. Uriel refuses uh, uh, to put them in a thing and also tells them that Assume has been a trusted friend for well over a decade and has more to protect his family than the air quotes merry band of Vox Machina ever has. Which Vax very bluntly points out that less than a year ago Uriel's own family was not of sound mind um, and that they had helped him with that. Um, Vax demands that his mind be looked at, which Uriel tells him will be done in a few days. That's so, right. it, like, it actually is That's saying, right. we will do that in a few days. Uh, Keyleth asks that she be allowed to cast a spell to remove any spell that may be hanging on to Assume to verify that he is, in fact, himself. With some doubt, Uriel agrees and Assume steps forward as the guards in the room take a more ready stance. Keyleth casts a spell and the seeker lets out a gasp, then stares into her eyes uh, as clarity comes over him, and he basically gestures for her to not say anything and follow his lead, as he then tells Uriel he feels no difference and his stance hasn't changed. Which is a moment that I kind I love this show, and I love a lot of the storytelling. That was sort of an, a little bit of an eye roll moment for me. I actually really liked I'm that. I'm going to be honest. I did because- too. So the reason that it was a bit of an eye roll moment for me is, and it's a, it's a purely emotional thing. It's not a, um, it's not a, like, there are plenty of, uh, of, of ways to, to weigh this away and you have to look at genre and stuff, but I'm looking at this and like everybody in the room is staring right at assume he has this notable reaction and it's like nope i feel the same and n- nobody seemed to have issue yeah so yeah. like mm-hmm. this this particular moment in my mind is the spy game you know secret nod and a wink that's very clearly not hidden by anything but you just go with it because it's a spy movie yes right yes. Mm-hmm. and that's the thing is like genre that that's where i'm saying like this is stuff that I, 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 I don't know why this one does. Like, this is stuff that I forgive in tons of shows because it's <laughs> But this one like, sticks in your crawl for some reason. This one bugs me for some reason. It was a suspension <laughs> of disbelief problem for me when it actually happened. Uh-huh. And I haven't been able to let that go. 
I don't know why. Jack? No, I I really enjoyed because I felt like it was it was an excellent peek behind the very strong curtain uh, that Matt builds around the character of Asum. Um, you know, mm-hmm. because I mean, he's a spy master. You're not supposed to be able to read the guy. You know, he's he's he is the 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 whisperer and the secret keeper. You know, and but seeing him obviously signal to the audience, who of course has a slightly more omniscient perspective on things than than most of the the characters within the story, to where it's like, yeah, no, the he was co opted. And once he's released from being co-opted, he immediately gauges the value of pretending you're still a double agent when you've already crossed the line into, I guess, triple now. And being able just his he's very quick with his reflexes and he's excellent at manipulating situations to his advantage. And in in my mind i read that like him making some taking a moment to to warn off keyleth before doing that and nobody else noticing as a testament to a his ability to act and b the fact that yeah no high power magic is not prevalent in this world like Mm -hmm. it exists and there are people that have access to high power magic but by the end of the campaign the player characters are going to be the most powerful entities in the world Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that being said, as far as the common guards in the room and Uriel, who is not a mage himself, might know any reaction he might have had until he responds verbally could be a part of the spell. Um, so I, I, I feel like the, at least in my mind, there's a bit of leeway there. Um, but, uh, so yeah, uh, Uriel informs them that until the investigation is complete, the status, their status as members of the council has been revoked, and as well, they are free to move about, but will be watched closely, and should they attempt to flee the city, it will be seen as a sign of guilt, and bounties will be placed on their heads. A fairly angry and slightly annoyed Vox Machina, uh, especially Tiberius, leave the throne room, head out into the street, and head out into the street outside the palace gates. Scanlan asks what happened, and Keyleth says that it worked, but Assume told her to follow his lead. Or gave her a sign to follow his lead. She doesn't know why, uh, but if somebody else on the council is being controlled or watched, uh, she doesn't know why. She has no idea why if someone else on the council is being controlled or watched, or if the Seeker has a long game that he's playing of some sort. Which, I don't know why she wouldn't assume that third one. Right. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know. I fixed him. He He continued to play. That definitively says he has a longer game. (laughs) Um, as they talk Vex remembers that they have a prisoner at their keep and Tiberius sees Laura coming down the palace stairs towards them she's concerned that the group is going down a dark path and she asks if they killed the woman Tiberius says he did indeed because she was a threat at the time (laughs) missing any and all social cues (laughs) (laughs) did you really kill that man yes I did God damn it, Tiberius! While the police are literally standing right next to you, I have figured out why Tiberius bugs me so much. Oh, okay. He's a sorcerer. Sorcerers are high charisma characters. Uh huh. 
He's playing the lowest charisma sorcerer in existence. Uh huh. <laughs> yep. He's playing a sorcerer like you play a wizard. And I think while that might be an interesting idea, it's that di- it's that 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 dichotomy that bugs me, just sort of innately bugs me about him. Um, yeah. Although, I mean, to an extent, I would say there's there's something to be said for the you know on on paper the high charisma character who acts like Tiberius is um, because there's tons of people who make excellent first or surface impressions and everybody seems to love them and then you spend more than an hour with them and you realize this is the worst fucking person on the goddamn planet except for hitler because we've already established he's bad um and tiberius's character kind of strikes me like that where you know your your initial interaction with him oh you know he's he's jovial he's impassioned he's you know charismatic to a to a great extent and but that charisma goes about three inches deep and then you start getting to the you know kind of shitty inside what he's doing is he's playing the other the other side of that charisma coin because charisma is not just like ability it's also force of personality mm-hmm. right in, mm-hmm. in some in, in like in edge of the empire it's referred to as presence yeah, right. Um, which I think is probably a better term for what charisma actually is in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's it's just it's a force of personality. It's your ability to to assert your will onto the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in that particular aspect, it's fine. It's just that it, he's playing a wizard, not a sorcerer. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I would argue that he doesn't really do the presence thing that much either unless he is in the middle of casting a spell i mean that that what i mean is that's that's sort of his and that's sort of what i see the intention as being the intention yes absolutely kind of like how Um, plays low charisma as not necessarily not being ugly but being bumbly yeah Uh socially awkward it's just tiberius is equally socially awkward with a higher charisma (laughs) Yep. Yep. Ah. But Allura is not best pleased by this answer. <laughs> no. Uh, she tells him that she did sense powerful magic from the lady at dinner, from uh, Lady Briarwood at dinner, possibly an illusion of some sort to mask her. And she tells him to get all the proof they can in the next few weeks. Uh, she hands Tiberius the finished earring of transcription, pausing with her hand on his for a brief moment, uh, showing her concern for the group. And she tells him to do the best to clear their names, then hustles off to work on something she isn't talking about. They thank her for an aid and watch her head towards her towards home before they also head towards the keep to extract information from the person locked in the basement, as they immediately forget all the lessons they've learned. <laughs> now, all right, that's done. Let's go torture a guy. <laughs> Which fortunately isn't what I don't think they, don't think they actively torture him, but there's so, there's there's hints of it in their initial sort of. <laughs> staging moments yeah no no they're, they're yeah. not they're, that's not what they actually do but that's what the intent feels like <laughs> um so uh uh they head back to the keep and when the rest of the group arrives when the group arrives at the keep um i'm oh, sorry tiberius says he has a few things to do before he goes back and everyone else goes back to the keep uh when they arrive vax and grog uh uh notice that there are two people standing outside the main gate. Well, the group notices that there are two people outside the main gate. Vax and Grog take point and head forward, and Grog calls out to their guards. Uh, Cordell shouts, Cordell, one of their guards, shouts back that they aren't a threat. 
As they get closer, they find not armored guards or mages, but instead an older couple in plain clothes that are slightly dirty. Good thing Tiberius isn't there or they'd be dead. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Clearly they're threats. Uh, the older man, a farmer named Ben Klaus, along with his wife, Riley, uh, have come along, have come asking for their help. They're Mr. and Mrs. Klaus? Mr. and Mrs. Klaus, yeah. Uh, they represent the farming community to the north of town, and recently there have been a number of livestock that have gone missing. A young boy was set to watch for thieves alike, but instead saw a massive bird with a wingspan, with a wingspan at least ten carts wide uh, uh, fly in and snatch up a bowl with ease and flew off to the northeast. See, where Keyleth. I come from, we measure things in axe handles. <laughs> uh, Keyleth asks a few questions and tries to ask her the nature of what they are describing, but nothing she's ever encountered fits the model of a bird 100 feet wide and able to grab a full-grown cow. The team agrees that they will investigate whatever is taking the livestock, but it may be a day or two before they can, due to the fact that they have some rather pressing matters at hand. Satisfied with the help that they will hopefully get, the older couple head back towards their home as the crew head towards the keep, having not killed the old people. As they do, Scanlan makes a point to remind Cordell that he had told them a little while back to not let people hang outside the front door, waiting for them to return. Uh, Vax heads up heads up to the wall to patrol and watch, as well as to blow off some steam, and the rest head to the basement, where their prisoner is kept. They find him chained to a wall, a bit more roughly than, than they had wanted. Uh, Vex asks for some food and water for him. Grog offers some ale, which he's a bit leery to take, uh, being that he's locked in a cell. Uh, they ask a number of questions about what happened and what he knows about the Briarwoods. The boy tells them that there were that there, there was major fighting. Nobles allied with the Dorolo family, who refused to follow the Briarwood, were drugged in the street and murdered. Lands and tiles were given uh, to folk who came with the invading pair. When they ask about the Lord and Lady directly, the boy tells them that the Lord is not seen nearly as much as the Lady is, and that she has been seen coming and going at all times of the day, including in direct sunlight. He tells them that he came into their service because Lord Briarwood saw battered wounds on the boy and, and was told his Lord had beat him. Uh, the Lord took the boy for his own, and the next day showed him his former Lord hanging from the sun tree. He tells them that the new masters have a castle filled with servants who aren't truly alive, slowly running away. There's a green mist that hangs over the lower levels, etc., 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 haunted vampire estate. Yep. Welcome to Barovia, but not really. This is just a little pocket Barovia. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but it's so, yeah. but it's some excellent foreshadowing. Kind of give the give the protagonists an idea of what you're in for. Yes, they describe Castlevania and then get the boy a bed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. Be, uh, saying that he is to be treated as a guest, not a prisoner. Uh, Scanlan heads to the back of the keep and finds Jarrett, the captain of their guard, and tasks him with specifically protecting the guest. Um, he informs the man that it is possible that Percy will try and enter the cell and that he is to be kept out at all cost. A little confused, Jarrett agrees and gathers his weapons and heads to the lower level to take his position. As Scanlan heads, uh, goes back in, he sees Vax at the wall and gives him a wave. While all this is going on, Tiberius It's just goes, me, but John, you are breaking up a shit ton. Hmm? Am I? Um, it is just you. I, it's just I, you. I okay. All right. Just me. Never mind. Ha-ha. <laughs> While all this is going on, Tiberius goes back to the Lyceum and gets the runes for the teleportation sigil to the town of Western. Uh, then heads towards the Lurus Tower to continue their conversation from before, because, again, Tiberius can read no social cues. Ah. Uh, <sighs> When he arrives at the gate that separates the Cloudtop District from the other parts of the Amon, the guards stand at attention and stand their ground. Tiberius asks them to move, but is instead informed that because of the current situation, the rights stand to the section of Iman have been revoked until further notice. He then flies back to the keep, taking off with a flight spell in front of the guards, which likely makes them think he's going to go into the town regardless, but he doesn't. 
but add it to the list of Tiberius not reading social cues. Uh, he lands on the roof and talks to Vax, telling his friends that it seems like no one likes him. <laughs> <laughs> While drunk. And then, no, no, not yet. Uh, no, he tells, he's they not tells, drunk yet. Shocked as no one has ever seen Tiberius consume alcohol, he offers his flask, which is rapidly emptied. A little fiery belch coming out after. Grog pops out and yells at them that he's ready to go hunt some giant chickens, only to find that Tibbs has gotten a little tipsy from his attempt to drink away his pain from the events of the last 24 hours. Yes, I murdered an old woman and now nobody likes me. Get <laughs> right? <No. laughs> I, 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 I am a terrible person who, not terrible, no, no, I'm going to stick with that. Terrible person who, <laughs> who, who, who does terrible things and is rude to all the wrong people, and they don't like me for it. I don't understand why. Although, to be fair, that's the wisdom score speaking, I think. Yep. Uh, uh, Vax calls Keyleth to attempt to fix him. Annoyed. Uh, she's pretty normal because she was working on other things. Um, and also because everybody's been shitting on her all day. That too. <laughs> uh, Princess Prettyface, as Tiberius calls her, again, ignoring social cues, but this time he's drunk, so he has an excuse. Um, I mean, when you do it, whether you're drunk or not, is it really an excuse at that point? <laughs> when you are drunk? Uh, tells him to go nap or do something and sleep it off. Uh, he tells her he loves protecting her and that Vax likes her and wants to do the human kissy face, which sends the half-elf disappearing into the keep. Keyleth heads back in to finish her reading and the dragonborn decides he's hungry, prompting Scanlan to encourage Sandwich. Everyone heads to the dining room and discuss to discuss options to protect the keep. Keyleth has a few ideas, but most of them are very temporary. Shoot someone an elemental and bite at the keep, but due to the cost of the spell, they decide that it would be better suited to be used as an emergency situation. Vex leaves Trinket behind to guard the prisoner with Jared while they head north to the farming community to hunt the bird because they all forgot that they had just recently said that it would take them a while to check on the bird because they were being investigated by Juriel. Yep. And they had been told not to leave the city, but I guess that doesn't matter. Um, they arrive and find the home of the Klauses. Klauses? Klaus? Klaus? They find the Klaus house. Hmm? They find the Klaus, Klaus house and talk to them briefly. You're um, welcome. <laughs> I mean, I, how, what's the plural of Klaus? Klauses. It's a it's a proper name, so it's always it's always Klauses. Klauses. You always just add apostrophe s, or actually apostrophe if it ends with an s. But Klaus Sai. But <laughs> no, absolutely this is not. not. Latin. <laughs> uh, Kla Klaus Sai would be multiple Klauses. This is the house that belongs to. The people named Klaus. So All right, back on Klaus's schedule. House. <laughs> Glamour! You're talking to an editor here, people. At least somebody the here knows the style manual. <laughs> Cross the way to find the boy that was set on guard against the bird. And they find him sitting on his porch, crossbow in hand, and that he's startled at their arrival, because who wouldn't be startled when a group of disparate-looking adventurers arrives at your front porch? Um... Keyleth asks about the bird, and he tells him that it's a giant, uh, just a giant feathered bird. He hasn't hit it, but he's tried a couple times. Grog points out, oh, those giant birds are fond of scruffy young boys, at which time he unloads his crossbow and rushes inside. Before he... Uh, this is, this is actually...
actually unloads his crossbow, not by just pulling the trigger right. and shooting yeah, yeah, one yeah. of them. Actually unloads the crossbow. <laughs> How crossbows are usually unloaded in this right. game. <laughs> so it would be funny if he's just like out of rock. <laughs> Uh, before he goes, Scanlan asks for a cowbell. The boy tells them their kid is weird and heads inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's always uh, hilarious when Scanlan gets mistaken for a child. And Vex points out a cowbell, wondering why Scanlan wants one. He tells them he has a plan, that they can all be bait, and that he can make them all look like cows, <sighs> but will still allow them to do things like use weapons and cast spells. Everyone climbs God. into the main pin, holds the cows, <laughs> and they gather around Scanlan. <laughs> Uh, who unleashes the seeming spell over everyone, and their outside appearances suddenly becomes that of a cow. <laughs> Which is amazing. Now, to be clear, their external appearance becomes that of a cow, but it still maps to their body like a... <laughs> uh, uh, like anything. Like, for instance, if you mapped a cow texture to a human to, to a human uh, skeleton in... or human rigging in a game, in a video game, uh, so, so, so they all look like that one video of putting Doomfist skin on oh, every other oh, character in Overwatch. Oh, that's nightmare <laughs> fuel. Except replace Doomfist skin with a cow skin. With a cow, right? <laughs> um, that's how. That's how the. That's how the the spell works. Rules as writ. I think Matt was exercising a little bit of GM fiat here oh, no, and allowing. Yeah. No, he explicitly said that. <laughs> as right. I recall. Um, because it doesn't proceed according to that that's the way they look as far as events are concerned but anyway yeah uh so yeah everyone climbs inside the main pen holding the cows and they all oh, sorry they yeah they, they hear them saying now properly camouflage as cows they wander around the field thank you subtracting i know how the recap reads thank you <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Keyleth heads over to the cows huddled under a shed and asks them about what's going on, using her ability to talk to animals. They tell her that a large winged thing has come to the sky at night and snatched them, getting into the, getting into, uh, character, Grog, uh, rage chews on some grass, um, and Scanlan drops a deuce in the middle of the field. For once, it's not weird, I believe is the quote. Uh... Vex spots a thing flying towards them, uh, though it seems smaller than the others were saying. Um, and as a few seconds pass, it grows in size. And as it gets closer, she realizes it was a lot further away than she thought it was. Um, it dives and grabs for Keyleth uh, as Vex casts Hunter's Mark uh, on it, uh, while Tiber Tiberius tries to cast Slow on it. Uh, but the speed of moving makes him miss the spell. Vax dashes forward with his boots of haste. Uh, and launches a dagger at the beast, but it misses just wide. Um, keeping in mind that they still look like cows at this point. <laughs> this is why, like, because, like, if you're down, if you're down on all fours, you look like a cow. But when you start standing up and flinging daggers, you look like a cow. <laughs> then you look like a cow on its hind legs yeah. with a really weird skeletal structure. Which, which is what, which is when I believe Matt, when Matt commented on it. Um, actually, no, I think he didn't comment on until they were flying. But anyways, yep. Uh, Grog throws his flaming warhammer. Oh, sorry, Vax misses. Grog throws his flaming warhammer, but the chain's just too short. Uh, and Keyleth in the bird's clutches, uh, attempts to dominate the bird, but is it's able to shrug off her magic and keep flying away at a very rapid pace. The group tries to keep pace, but even Vax, with his boots of haste, is unable to keep up. Uh, Scanlan, knowing that he's only got one shot, casts Dimension Door and lands in the back of the bird. 
the wind whipping pushes him back, but he's able to get a hang on some feathers and hold on. So he and Keyleth, hanging on for dear life, are being flown away. Tiberius casts fly on everyone, and they take off. A group of cows sailing towards the mountain range to <laughs> the along the coast called the Shoreline Summit. Um, moving as fast as they can, the bird's still putting distance between them every few seconds. Uh, as And they continue flying, trying to catch up to it. As they do, they suddenly see the shape. Uh, they see uh, the shape disappear as Keyleth casts Polymorph on the bird, uh, which drops her and falls towards the ground. Scanlan, no longer hanging on a giant bird, also begins to fall. As they fall, Keyleth turns into a giant eagle, which is now a giant eagle with the skin of a cow. Uh, um, and watches the real cow because she turned the bird into a cow uh, fall. Scanlan polymorphs himself into a pterodactyl and takes to the skies as well. They still look like cows as well at this whole time. So picture that in your mind, a pterodactyl and a giant eagle with the skin of a cow stretched over them. With a huge impact in a cloud, the yeah. cow bird slams into the ground. <laughs> Jack just pictured it. Uh, the cow bird slams into the ground, breaking the polymorph, lets out a high-pitched screech, and unfurls its wing and again takes to the air. Visibly injured, it flies deeper in the mountains uh, as the group follows, tracking it with Vex, with Vexalia's hunter's mark. Uh, eventually, uh, they find the bird at its nest, and as they hover, a voice calls out to them, telling them they're here to fight. Why don't they? Well, if they're here to fight, why did they send flying cows to do this? I mean, it's a legitimate question. That is a, that is a valid fucking inquiry. <laughs> it is a very good inquiry. Uh, Tiberi- uh, uh, Tiberius lands. Uh, the rest of them land and uh, dispel the cow. Uh, Tiberius dispels the cow effect. Um, because Scanlan doesn't want to drop it. <laughs> Although technically it should have dropped when Scanlan turned into a thing, but regardless. Um, they find a... Uh, actually, I don't think he steps out yet. They're just sort of talking to the air at this point. Um, Tiberius stands at the edge of the nest looking for the voice in the darkness. He says he's going to bring some light in and casts light, but tries to shield it slightly. Uh, as he babbles out a reason for them being there, Vax slips behind the bird and, uh, tries to figure out where the voice is coming from. Uh, Keyleth lands at the edge of the nest, changing out of her form and asking Tiberius to remove the cow spell from her so she can talk to the now visible gnome, uh, who seems to be protecting the bird and casting healing spells on it. Uh, as Kayla tries to talk to her fellow druid, she tells him that the community is not happy with the creature stealing the livestock. Byron, the name of the druid, uh, uh, tells her that he cares not for civilization and that he and the bird hunt what they need. She makes a handful of berries, holding them out for the bird to take his offer of peace. The beak moves over and sniffs them and takes the berries from her, as well as a large chunk of her flesh, because it's a giant bird. Right. I mean, regular-sized birds accidentally nip you when, they, when you try to feed them from your palm. Bird's gonna bird. Yep. Byron tells him that this rock is the last of its family, uh, and that its mother and Clutch were killed by giants, uh, as Keyleth um, tries to persuade him that they don't want to kill the bird, they just want it to stop eating cows. I believe after a little bit of back and forth, um, after a little bit of back and forth, uh, 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 Byron asks Keyleth for alternative lands for them to go to, um, and Tiberius sends them to Eris Tiberius, getting the idea from Vax, uh, gets the idea from Vax to send them to Whitestone. 
Keyleth says no. Uh, she's not going to send the attack, creatures to attack and hunt at a land that's already being ravaged by the Briarwoods. Um, and then Vax brings up Vasselheim. Uh, Byron doesn't believe them uh, about Vasselheim, but Keyleth tells them that there they have special permissions to do any hunting. Uh, that there they must have special permissions to do any hunting. Uh, Byron laughs, telling them nothing will prevent this guild hunting him and the creature down. Keyleth, uh, the, the, the Hunter's Guild specifically. Uh, uh, Keyleth's starting to get frustrated a bit, but Scanlan addresses the creature in Gnomish and telling him that while there are, may not be any natural predators, uh, this group is one predator that will hunt him and the bird until they leave. Uh, basically telling, like, look, you can either leave and everyone lives, or we'll kill you and the bird. Yep. Yep, Byron makes <clears throat> them over and decides that he has no other option, so he goes to Vasselheim with the rock. <laughs> so yeah. you're saying that finally the rock went to Vasselheim? Finally the rock went to Vasselheim, yes. Oh dear God. Uh, as a <laughs> Hey, there are and enough that's puns where in this we're goddamn, ending today, everybody. <laughs> there are enough yeah. puns in this goddamn episode. I get to throw out one of my own. <laughs> yeah, the, um, yeah, they, they, they give them two cows for the journey. Uh, they pay for two cows for the rock to take on the journey, and they leave. And this has been a lovely uh, ed- edition of filler episode. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which uh, I think we've referenced it before, but basically a filler episode is what you put is is what happens when you're trying to pad out time. Um, it's the kind of episode that when you look, you might enjoy it in the moment, but then you look back on it and really can't tell anyone why it's there. Yeah. Like, this episode, okay, don't get me wrong. While I was watching it, I was laughing. Um, probably not as much as, as, as some people were. Uh, it's definitely, I don't know, the humor just didn't resonate to me the same the way that some people, but, but it was fine at the time. Like, this is the most skippable episode in the history of Critical Role. Um, at worst, you watch like the first 45 minutes and then skip the rest because there's nothing relevant here. No, spoiler alert, nothing after that is going to pop up. I don't think they ever meet Byron again. Or the no, Rock. they never meet Byron again. There's, I think maybe there's like one brief reference to The Rock afterward in like a, a, a side note. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But like filler episodes, and this is you know this is coming from somebody who who reviews shows as when they're airing. Filler episodes are the bane of people who are looking at things critically, because you're you're, or or the bane of people who really love serial storytelling because you are invested in the storyline. You want to see the storyline continue. You're excited to see what next. We're turning into cows, and we're not fighting a rock. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. all right the, it, it it takes all of the momentum that your storyline has built up and i understand why it happens on television particularly when there are 20 on on shows on broadcast tv although broadcast tv is thankfully getting away from this a bit where they are they are obsessed with the 24 episode season um and so to do that and to do a full full serial arc you need to have these filler episodes in something like this and i understand that this isn't like this is not something that was necessarily planned as a side thing or at least at the level that it was um in something like 
critical role, it's not needed because it's not in a seasonal format. There's nothing that needs really that side thing, except for I think the only thing that, that when I was looking at this, why it could have happened, why it may have happened, was because last episode was really, really dark. And well, so I also think you did a tonal lift. Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I would say the other reason that I think this episode happened the way it was, um, was partially because it's very difficult to progress the Briarwood arc if Talison, the player, is not present. That is a valid point. Right. Yeah. And that, so there are a couple of reasons <clears throat> why, why filler episodes happen. A, um, an actor isn't available for a week. Um, in, in TV and, in, in TV and ongoing series, that happens a lot. Like you might have, you might have 24 episodes written out, but one actor has a conflicting, uh, agreement with a film or something. And so a couple of those episodes towards the end of your filming run, that actor's not going to be there. And that's a, that's a thing you knew when you cast that actor. So you have a couple of episodes where that person's just not there and you have to come up with a reason for yep. them to not be there, for them not being involved. Or pregnancies or Pregnancy, whatever yeah. the case may be. Pregnancy, a variety of different things there. Two, you have 12, you have, you have, uh, 20 episodes worth of content, but a 24 episode season. Yep. Uh, that happens a lot too. Um, Which I guess I'm so glad the TV is getting away from that at this in, point. Because in the realm of, in the realm of animation, uh, there is when you are map, when you're making an anime that's going after a manga or, or any sort of uh, animated series that's going after a comic, um, you have to put build spoilers or not build, build spoilers, build filler arcs so that the comic can catch up. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. That's. That's another thing that happens with, with, with television laws. When you're adapting a storyline from a comic book, Runaways was a really good example of a show that just recently aired uh-huh. and everybody should watch it because it's fucking amazing. Yes. Um, but they filled out that, the, the, the storyline. And I don't think it was necessarily filler, but they filled out that storyline a lot because the comic book, as much as I love it, and it's one of my absolute favorite comics of all time, there is the storyline moves along very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, so they had to add a bunch of stuff and ultimately, um, things that happen in like the second episode don't happen or the second issue don't really happen until the end of the season. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely something that, that, that happens. There's legitimate needs for it. It always grates on me. Yeah, no, it's it, it 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 it's a thing that has various levels of success. So yeah. the key I find to making good filler, uh, at least in my experience, is to make filler that has a story. Mm-hmm. It is not just a series of events. This and 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 you know it's hard to do that when you're doing a live stream D and D game, right? But after the story part of this episode ended, there wasn't really much left to happen. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, it's sort of like uh, an hour and a half of an hour and a half of story, and then an hour and a half of nothing. Um, and then an hour and a half of comedy. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> two two varying degrees of comedy. Two varying yes. degrees of yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. No, the first time you watch this episode, you'll probably laugh your ass off a good bit of the time when you're not rolling your eyes. Uh, and, yeah. But it, this one is one of those that if you're, you know, yeah, if, when you're, when you're talking about the, the great narrative moments of 
critical role, this one is probably not going to be on anybody's list. No, it's it's fun I mean, and it's funny, but it's not wholly necessary. No, it helps also that, and this is one of the things I think that makes Critical Role so enjoyable, is that the cast is clearly having so much fun with this. Oh episode. yeah, um, that moment where Matt's just like, "I love Dungeons and Dragons." <laughs> hey, that is one of, of the- like, if nothing else, this episode is worth it for that. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, this episode yeah, also, the, the iconic watch, gif watch, of, of the watching, watching it again is, you know, the episode that made me realize what specifically I didn't like about Tiberius. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that has been episode 26 of Critical Role. We'll be back next week with episode thir- uh, 27. Uh, and, we'll see y'all and we actually will probably be back, well, yeah. unlike <laughs> usually, because we found a good recording time at last. Yay! Yes, yes. So yeah, we'll talk to you guys later. Say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.